You know, the first missionaries to Alberta, Canada, were sent to bring the gospel to the Cree Indians, and they were savagely beaten by the Cree, rejected by the Cree, aggressively resisted by them. It was a painful, well, painful experience, faithfully carried out. But eventually, the honest-to-goodness friendship of these missionaries and the respect that they showed to these native people, the Cree, brought response. And the young chief of the Cree responded to those first missionaries sent to Alberta, Canada, by receiving Christ. Jesus got to him. He fell in love with Jesus and began to study the ways of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and to compare those to the ways he was living, the way his people were living, and to try to align himself and the, and the practices of his people with the person of Christ. Shortly afterward, his beloved father was killed by a renegade member of the Blackfoot tribe. Now, there was tension between those tribes, obviously, and there was hatred between those tribes. But this young Cree chief's dad was murdered, by a member of the Blackfoot tribe. First instinct was to respond in kind, as he always had, and in, as honor demanded, according to the culture, as he had a right to respond. But this Jesus teaching began to take over in him, and he responded quite differently. The Cree chief rode into the village where the murderer lived, got everybody's attention and demanded that the man who had killed his dad be brought before him. Everybody recognized that that's what had to happen because this was his right. But everybody was shocked by what they saw because he confronted the guilty Blackfoot member not by, offer, by repaying death with death, but what he said was something like this. You have killed my father. So now you must be my father. And from now on, you must ride the best horse and wear the best clothes and be in my life and in my heart. You must become to me what you have taken from me. And in utter amazement, that murderer looked and said, You're right. I killed your father, and now you've killed me because you've killed in me all the hatred that for so long lived in me. And they enter it, entered into this kind of a relationship for the rest of their lives. Now, we've been talking in this sermon series about the markers along the way of authentic Christianity, these cairns that we have. So if we're trying to walk the well-worn path of authentic Christian faith. There are certain practices, convictions, beliefs, whatever you want to call them, that are the cairns, the markers that remind us that we're on the right trail. We've talked about things. Uh, these are markers that help us to know that we are on the well-worn path toward becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. We've been using those very words every single week to remind us. And we have so far noted cairns of chastity and generosity 
Christian activism. And these are all tied together uh, to, these are holy attributes, these are holy virtues that stand against the seven deadly sins, the classic seven deadly sins. So there's a deadly sin and there's a holy attribute or a holy virtue that is offered to contend with that particular deadly sin. Last week we heard a wonderful message on kindness uh, from Lauren Ng. How many of you were here to hear that? Man, man, what a gifted communicator and a great heart she offered in that challenge to kindness. Today we address the deadly sin of wrath. Wrath will kill you. The artist Erte has depicted all seven of these deadly sin, seven deadly sins. Here's his rendition, his painting, to represent wrath. And you have snakes instead of hair, and angry eyebrows, and red eyes, and fire breathing out wrath. The deadly sin of wrath. But it's addressed by a virtue. It's a deadly sin, but there's a holy virtue that contends with this deadly sin. They cannot coexist. Wrath cannot live at the same time as this virtue. And it's the virtue of forgiveness. So what we're saying is, when you're walking the path of normal, true, authentic Christian faith, one of the markers that are going to be seen on that path, one of the normal practices Normal values, absolutely standard for us, is forgiveness. And that means that there are people in this room right now that are not feeling very comfortable. Because wrath is a whole lot easier, at least in my broken experience, to hold on to than forgiveness. Now let's get something clear. Let this be an umbrella over everything I say from here on out without me having to say it again. How can I put this? Wrath, excuse me, forgiveness does not trump justice. But neither does justice trump forgiveness. Does that make any sense? There, forgiveness is the ability to be aware of a debt owed to you, but without the resentment that goes along with it. So it doesn't mean if you took my red wagon, that you no longer owe me a red wagon. You owe me a red wagon, that's justice. But the resentment, the anger, the, 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 the grudge that goes along with the fact that you took that wagon from me, forgiveness says, no, nah, that's being set aside. And so now there's a context at least of civility and peace where we might be able to go and talk about some way to work out justice. So I'm not saying to forgive means there's no more debt owed. If you, somebody owes you a debt because there was an injustice, you haven't kept forgiveness from them by still saying, oh, but there's still a debt we have to deal with. Just a Forgiveness does not trump justice. But I am saying neither does justice trump forgiveness. There's got to be a heart that says, let's be at peace with each other. The grudge is no longer being held, just the debt. So let's understand that, okay? Because that's some confusion about uh, about forgiveness. Man, if that were what forgiveness was, so many of us couldn't afford to offer forgiveness, it would be virtually impossible to do. But forgiveness, now forgiveness is a, well, is a cairn on the well-worn path toward normal Christianity, toward authentic Christian faith. Everybody loves forgiveness 
when they need to receive it. Forgiveness is a wonderful trait when you need to receive it. Everybody has something to say about forgiveness. One author wrote, forgiveness is that funny thing that at the same time warms the heart and cools the sting. That funny thing that at the same time warms the heart and cools the sting. It's a great thing. The singer Jewel. Anybody remember Jewel? I think Jewel's really talented. She referred to forgiveness as the needle that knows how to mend. Forgiveness. Don Henley. Of course, forgiveness. Man, I don't know. I've been thinking about it, trying to get to the heart of the matter, and I think it has something to do with forgiveness. Even if you don't love me anymore, I think, I think there's something to forgiveness. I think that's essential. Lewis Smedes, the Christian author, the late Lewis Smedes, in his excellent book, Forgive and Forget, says this about forgiveness. It's the act of setting a prisoner free and then realizing that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness. Not only is forgiveness a major marker on the path Christianity, but perhaps forgiveness is the main point of the entire enterprise of Christianity. It's what we receive. It's what caused the heart of God to send the Son of God to address people created by God and give them hope again. It's God feeling distant from his children, saying, come on, let's be reconciled. Please make a choice to receive this offer that you hear in my son so that I can have my children sit on my lap again as fathers and children should relate to each other. I want to forgive you. Here's a way to do it. Please receive it. It's the essence of Christianity. And as we're living like Jesus for Jesus, when we've received so much of it from Jesus, we're challenged by that loving Lord to offer it to others in the name of Jesus. Forgiveness. Listen, can I be clear? You could go home after I make this next statement and still have the point of this message. If there ain't no forgiveness at least longed for, and the power to forgive, at least hoped for, there ain't no true Christianity. Forgiveness is at the center of our faith. At least the desire to move toward Christ and his practice of it. Okay, so that's that. Forgiveness is a cairn, a marker along the well-worn path of authentic Christianity. But I want to ask I wanted to look into the subplot this week. Because if that's true of forgiveness, my crazy mind this week, as I was studying, went here. Huh. Well, then I wonder what some of the cairns are in the well-worn path to forgiveness. Because forgiveness is one of the markers, the practice of it, along with these other holy virtues that we've talked about for the last five or six weeks in authentic Christianity. Authentic Christians are trying their best to figure out how to find the power to forgive. Little by little sometimes, but we're trying to do that. That's our longing, even if it can't be our practice, our experience. It's our longing, at least. But what are the markers along the path of forgiveness itself? What are some of the things that seem to be the presuppositions, the foundations for forgiveness, the cairns to forgiveness, because forgiveness is a cairn on the path of Christianity? So let's look at some of those. 
That's how we'll spend the rest of our time. What are the markers on the well-worn path to forgiveness itself? Here's the first one. First one is compassion. Where there is no compassion, there can be no forgiveness. And by compassion, I mean this. A true and enduring, growing love for all people. To where the only prerequisite for receiving love from a Christian is that you be a human being. And we even go beyond that. You can love dogs too, okay? I love my dog, Boo. I love him. But I don't love him like I love you. I don't love him like I love the most despicable human being I could ever imagine. Because I want to be growing in my compassion. It's that true and enduring love for all people. Now, that is from the front cover to the back cover of Scripture. It's everywhere. It's in the prophets. It's in the people of Israel. It's in the New Testament. It's in Jesus. It's in the apostles. It's everywhere. It's in all the great Christians of history. They, they love people. There's this heart of compassion. It's a, a highly valued trait. Listen to one example of it and see the compassion, the love for all people, even the most despicable people. Listen to what Jesus says. Hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Cool, I can do that. Especially that last part. Oh, can I hate my enemy? I was a football coach, a high school football coach in Sacramento, and I uh, used to love to do that while I was a youth pastor. Let me tell you the level of hatred and my ability to hate my enemy. Our school JV team that I was coaching was playing a rival school JV team. We could not stop this quarterback. I don't care what defense I called, what blitz I called, I could not stop this guy. He was inhuman. I'm thinking, why in the world are you playing JV football, for goodness sake? It's just not fair. So I took one of my worst players who had never played a day in his life of defense, and I pulled him over to me. I mean, this was the kid, everybody has one of these kids on their team. The kid who, it, you know the idea, he, his eyes are rolled back in his head, he's so angry and psyched up? That's this kid. I could do that in about two sentences with him. Leroy, come here! And I'd take and bang him on the helmet, do all the things we do, you know, and I'd headbutt his helmet, you know, and he's going, ah! I say, Leroy, I want you to go out there. I want you to get on that line. I'm so sick of seeing that quarterback beat us. Uh, when they hike the ball, I want you to, you have one job, Leroy. You take that quarterback out of this game. One hit, one job. I don't care if you get a penalty. I don't care if you get booed. If you do that, you're my hero. And I bang him a little more. He doesn't even know which way is up. He goes out there, lines up the wrong way, gets a flag. They hike the ball. He goes in, takes the kid out. My head coach, who is a serious follower of Christ, as was I at the time. <laughs> you know, I coached so I could share the love of Jesus with those students. You have access, you know, when you're a coach. My head coach comes over and said, Art, come here. I heard you sent Leroy in there. Did you really do that? Well, yeah. And now they have their crummy quarterback in and we're coming back. <laughs> I can't stand that kid. And he rebuked me pretty solidly. It never occurred to me as it would today, I, I assure you. <laughs> that that was somebody's son. Somebody's grandson. 
a kid trying to go to high school and have fun playing football who is being punished by me because I can't find a way to get my team to keep up with this level of excellence that came from the result of hard practice and some inherent talent. It never occurred to me that his parents were in the stands watching him, that his grandparents might have come from Washington, D.C. to watch their grandson play football, that they were going to go out for ice cream afterward. It never even occurred to me because why? I had zero compassion for that kid. And Jesus says... It has been said to you, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies, and I am all in with that. If only he'd have stopped. But he goes on, but I tell you, I tell you, those of you who are following me, those of you who sing worship songs to me, I tell you, love your enemies. What do you mean by that? Pray for those who persecute you. Go to the one who took the life of your father and demand that he now become your father and ride the best horse and wear the best clothes. Do that so that you may actually be children of your father in heaven because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you What reward do you get? Are not even the most despicable, the tax collectors among you, practicing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be complete. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, have a genuine love for all people, even those who stab you in the back even those who steal from you, even those who curse you, even those who do all kinds of evil against you. The normal practice of a mature and growing Christian, as challenging as it is, is to say, you are my enemy. How can I love you? In fact, other teachings in Scripture go so far as to say, as a matter of fact, have no enemies. As far as it has anything to do with you, be at peace with all people. If they want to have you as their enemy, that's their call. But put yourself in the place where I don't even have any enemies because I choose not to hold a grudge. That's how radical the teaching of Jesus is. And one of the cairns on the path to forgiveness, which is forgiveness itself, one of the cairns, on the well-worn path to authentic Christianity, one of the cairns on the path to forgiveness is compassion. A true and enduring love for all people. So it ought to be our regular prayer. Oh, Holy Spirit, defeat in me anything that keeps me from that kind of love and put in me everything that enables and empowers that kind of love. Because I don't know how to love my enemies And I certainly don't know how to not have any. Take me there, Lord. I want to move towards you in that. Niebuhr called forgiveness the final form of love. The essence of love. But that final form of love always goes, I say, through the gate of compassion. Second point. What's the second cairn on the well-worn path to forgiveness? Because forgiveness is certainly a cairn 
on the well-worn path to authentic Christianity. The second marker of forgiveness, compassion, and then patience. Now, there's not a, (laughs) yeah, I can't keep my carrot on the nose at all. I just want to grab it before it leaves my master's hand. Nobody I know is less qualified to challenge you about patience than moi. I am not patient at all. You even have, if you've hung out with me in a grocery store line, you know that I'm not patient. Sometime today, you know, let's go drive with me sometime. Not really dipped into the spirit very much. Well, a spirit, not the spirit. Go, go, out, go out into the middle of the intersection to turn left. Do not wait back behind the line. You go out in the middle. Then the guy behind you can go too. Did you know that, by the way? No patience. But I've got to figure out patience because patience is connected with forgiveness. How so? Because patience cures wrath. Remember that deadly sin of wrath we're addressing. By taking time to understand the needs the desires and the circumstances of others before acting. So patience is like a cartilage. It's like a buffer. It's like a parenthesis. It's like a gap. Patience doesn't naturally just react. When there's patience, you take some time to think for, "Ah, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. And you have time to consider forgiveness. Do you see how that works? Patience. Compassion, man, I don't know what that person's been through in their life. Perhaps, perhaps they didn't have some of the resources I had, and I should love them just because they're human. Calm down. Patience. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to respond. I'm going to take a second, take advantage of this gift of patience that I have, now that I'm growing, and think. It's a buffer zone. Look at 2 Timothy, this challenge. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, and then this, patient when wrong. Patient when wrong. You would think it would say, forgiving when wronged. And it sort of does. Patient when wrong. I'm wronged. A sin has been committed against me. Take a breath. I can wait. Let's see what the Lord does. Let's see what the Lord says. Let's see how my heart feels about this tomorrow. Maybe the flames aren't raging so much. And I want a different response than the Italian response I'm about to give. Patience is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit too. Remember that? Love, joy, peace, patience, the gift of the Spirit, are, the gifts of the Spirit are obvious. In contrast to the gifts uh, of a different spirit, the gifts of the flesh, included there is wrath, by the way. Patience is God's way of empowering us to count to 10 before acting. Take a breath, count to 10, think about this. It's very Swedish in that regard, you know. <laughs> And it's an essential marker and root to the cairn of forgiveness. So we have compassion, and we have patience. And then I'll finish 
with this one. Remember we're talking about one of the great markers in the well-worn path to authentic Christianity being forgiveness. We major in forgiveness. But what are the markers on the well-worn path of forgiveness? Compassion, patience, and then this one, humility. Humility is a major Christian attribute that has been virtually discarded by the Christian church. The pioneer battling heart of American freedom has trumped the tender, powerful, forgiving, loving, humble heart of American Christianity. And I offer you as a pastor a tremendous warning to stay vigilant and not let that happen. To not let your politic become your Jesus or your opinions about different things that ought to be or ought not to be in our country to become your guiding light. Jesus should stay there always, and the teachings of Jesus always. And one of those teachings and examples that he offered is humility. But I want to focus in on an application of humility. There's this thing in 1 John that he references called the boastful pride of life. It's the... uh, It's the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way of life. Remember that song? I didn't need anybody. I was a strong human being. When I got knocked down, by God, I got back up. In fact, it wasn't very by God at all. I did it myself. I did it my way. I needed nobody. I'm responsible for everything good. And if something bad happened, I took care of it. Why? Because I'm human and humanity conquers everything. That's the message of I did it my way. It's a beautiful tune. In fact, it's a fantastic song with a terrible message. There couldn't be a more anti-Jesus message than that song. And the fact that it's such a beautiful song, sung by one of America's best singers ever, is part of the problem. Because that's that's really our mantra. Unless we practice humility. And my expression of humility, the focus here that leads to forgiveness is this. You got compassion, patience, and humility. By humility, I mean not only the willingness to forgive, but how about the willingness to be forgiven? First of all, by God, which assumes a willingness to recognize that you need forgiveness from God, which implies this idea that there is someone over me, someone bigger than me, someone upon whom I am dependent, and it's normal for me to be dependent. And so I I come down before God and I say, I might be strong by human standards, but I still need you. I'll always need you, and I yield to you. I bow down before you. Unite me. Put your powerful sword across one shoulder, then the other, and commission me and send me, but I always serve you. And I need forgiveness from you. For I'm broken and I've broken dishes all my life. I have sin in my life. Even on my best day, I have sin in my life. Even the be- Mother Teresa needed to bow her knee before God and say, please forgive me for my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. 
Humility. The willingness to know you need forgiveness. Martin Luther King said, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. Humility recognizes the good in others, but also the evil in ourselves. And more importantly, seeks to address both through Christ. Jesus, forgive me. Psalm 103, I'm reading it in the New American Standard. I think the the, uh, version we have up on the screen is the New International Version, but read both at the same time and you get a sense for the meaning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So there's a command to our soul to bless the Lord, to worship him. We attempted to do that today. Forget none of his benefits, verse 2 said, who pardons all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. There's a recognition of pardon and the need for pardon. There's the humility I'm talking about. I have iniquities and I'm dependent upon God to reconcile us, to bring me back into relationship with him through the finished work of Jesus who came and lived a perfect human life, the life I couldn't live but was supposed to live, representing all of humanity, and then takes that life and says, here, Father, Count it as though all of humanity lived this perfect life that can measure up to you, that loves you, that served you. And then we are given the opportunity. And then he dies on the cross, takes on all of the sin of all of humanity of all time. That's why he said to his father, whoa, it feels an awful lot like you've forsaken me. You've turned your back on me. I've never experienced that before. Why? Because he became sin on our behalf. And then he dies, taking the punishment for our sin. And then, surprise, surprise, he does it one better and he's raised from the dead. We celebrate that on Easter as if to say, in fact saying, I made death irrelevant for those who follow me and all of it is forgiven if we choose to take advantage of that life and that death. That's the gift given. And we're reconciled to our Father because All of our iniquities, the text says, were laid on him. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's what it means to become a Christian. To say, yeah, I'm in, I want that. He redeems our life from the pit. Crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Satisfies all of your your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. This text is full of passages that talk about transgressions. Listen to verse 11. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. I'm sorry, guys. I'm jumping all over the place, so those guys are trying to find me and catch up. This is on me, not them. In verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our what? Our transgressions from us, our sins from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who reverence him, who fear him. Humility is essential to forgiveness. Humility says things like this. Dude, you've been forgiven $10. Why can't you forgive somebody else $5? You've been forgiven for offending God. And you were happy to receive what God offers, his mercy. Please represent that by offering at least the removal of a grudge, even while maintaining 
a right for justice. In the name of Christ, it's then that you look like your father. It's then that you represent true faith. I'll never get over the memory of that quote by Gandhi that in effect said, I'd probably be open to becoming a Christian. In fact, he sought it. If you Christians look a little bit more like your Lord, like your Christ, his rejection was wholly based on the fact that he saw too little of Jesus in the followers of Jesus. Huh? Compassion, patience, humility. Markers of the well-worn path to forgiveness, which is the essence of the trail and the journey in the first place, true Christianity. Listen, raise your hand. I'm going to give you some clues. Now, you raise your hand when you think you know what it is I'm talking about. This is an historical event. I'll give you one clue at a time. Ready? We're almost done. Sunday, September 15th, 1963. That's the date in history. Anybody know the event that makes that date so important? How about 10.22 a.m., Sunday, September 15th, 1963, right in the middle of the Sunday school hour, Sunday morning, September 15th, 1963. You've got a handful. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? If I add Birmingham, Alabama, does that help? 16th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, Sunday school hour, September 15th, on Sunday morning, 1963, is when Thomas Blanton, Jr., Herman Frank Cash, and Robert Edward Chambliss, and Bobby Frank Cherry, heard a great big explosion that they caused by planting a bomb under the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church, a black church. These were supremacists, these were racists, these were terrorists, who were not happy at all with the way Birmingham was being forced to integrate schools. You know, I mean, because they, I mean, you got to give them credit. I mean, people were offering some pretty nasty, crazy things like treating all humans equally and giving access to equal, edu- equal access to education for dark-skinned human beings and white-skinned human beings in the same schools. Crazy, absurd ideas. Well, you should blow up churches when that happens and try to scare people into giving up on their dreams and hopes. Put your own child's face in that history. Jesus says, when you've done X to the least of these, my beloved children, you've done it to me. Put the face of Jesus there. And the bomb went off. And four little girls were killed. And many others injured. Addie Mae Collins, upper left corner, and we'll go clockwise. Cynthia Wesley, Carly Robertson, and Carol Denise. 
all they were doing was down, being down in the basement of the church, playing, straightening out their choir robes, getting ready to worship their good Savior, laughing and giggling like little girls tend to do. All excited about maybe they were going to have dinner at each other's houses after worship. And this bomb goes off, and I will not put you through the descriptions I've read of how their bodies were crushed and dismantled. I can't not feel angry when I read that, when I remember that, because I remember that. And these girls would have been about my age right now had they been allowed to live. Down in the basement, adjusting choir robes, making sure your sash is straight, talking about little Bobby who's so cute, and boom. Racism, hatred, kills them. And three of those little girls were in their caskets at a funeral where Dr. King preached. And standing over those caskets, part of his sermon, he said, history has proven over and over again that unmerited suffering is redemptive. How does that make sense? Staring at three captives, uh, caskets, that's unmerited suffering, and you're telling me it's redemptive. How is that redemptive? It's redemptive because unmerited suffering affords us the possibility of unmerited pardon. And that's redemptive. Death, not such a great thing. Not like that. But forgiveness is. Unthinkable forgiveness is redemptive. And according to the teachings and actions of Jesus, our Jesus, our Lord, the one that leads us, one of the most carefully formed and highly stacked cairns along the path of authentic Christianity is forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Not the forgiveness that trumps justice, but the kind of forgiveness that will not allow justice to trump it either. Oh, by the way, bulletins from that Sunday morning were, of course, blown all over the street. Two blocks away, houses had windows broken and were disturbed. And in the bulletin from the 16th Street Baptist Church, Sunday, September 15th, was printed the title of the sermon that the pastor had planned for that day. Do you know what the title of the sermon that day was? A Love That Forgives. Hmm. Let's pray. Now take us down the true path, Lord the crazy, impossible path of forgiveness, of maybe not letting go of the debt, but certainly letting go of the grudge that like a parasite has attached itself to it. Make us like Jesus, Holy Spirit, so that we can love not only those who are our neighbors, but our enemies. We pray this in the name of the one we serve, the name of Jesus.